thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Our passage this morning is in Galatians 5, and that's Galatians 5, verse 1. Pastor Mike preached on verse 1 and verse 13 last week, and really this sets the main idea for our passage today as well. Paul has been arguing throughout this book of Galatians, in favor of holding firm to the gospel and rejecting this false teaching of legalism. And this is his last main impassioned argument as he presents this choice to them. The passage that Jesus read earlier, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. When we set our minds on something, or in this case, it's talking about having an opinion or a point of view. Paul is presenting the choice to them. Are you going to choose to stand firm in the gospel, or are you going to choose to embrace this false teaching, this heresy of legalism? Let's read the rest of the passage, verses 2 through 12. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Last week, Pastor Mike highlighted that for freedom from the law, Christ has set us free from legalism. Who won this freedom for us? Our Lord Jesus. He's our Savior. We've also been talking about, basically, there are two kinds of common heresies. Galatians focuses primarily on one, uh, but that doesn't mean that the other one is not present also. So the main, main heresy that Paul is attacking in Galatians is the heresy of legalism, otherwise is known, known as being very religious. And the main idea that you can think of in, the, in legalism is do this 
or else you're not saved. You must do this or else you're not saved. The other heresy that is important to guard against also is the very fleshly heresy of license. And this heresy has actually the benefit of understanding well a portion of the gospel, which is that grace is free, that salvation is free, that if, as Jesus read in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then, well, if there's no condemnation, then I can do whatever I want. There's, there's no long-term eternal consequences if I go ahead and sin. And so that is a very dangerous way of thinking. It's not the main problematic teaching or way of thinking that Paul is addressing in Galatians. He does, I'll take the opportunity to point out in verse 13, address it here in this passage. For you were called to freedom, brothers. That's freedom in Christ, freedom from the law. That sounds pretty good. You don't have to do what the law says in order to be saved. But then he gives this warning. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The idea there is that we have received this incredible gift of love from God, and so now we want to love other people. We want to love him, and we want to love other people. And so that will guide our conduct then. It's not that we are free to do exactly whatever we want, but we are now free to live a life of righteousness and to live a life of love. So let's get into verse 2. In this portion, there are, there's an identity statement in verses 2 and 3, and then there's an achievement or statement. And Paul says, if you ascribe to this identity, that it will result in these consequences. And similarly, if you choose this way of life, of achievement, being justified by the law, then he has some strong things to say. Um, I have two toddlers, and I have two ch- my older two children are also very recently not toddlers. And so the way I think of this false teaching legalism, really, is all by myself. You think of toddlers, and they, they want they appropriately seeking autonomy and trying to develop who they are, and they have this idea, I want to do this by myself. And I'm told that I, when I was a, a small child, too, I said all my myself. So this is the attitude that I struggle with, too. So if you're thinking, oh, I'm not legalistic, it's possible, as I struggled with even in this passage and felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I like to prove that I'm competent. I like to prove that I'm good enough in my own strength. And oftentimes when I'm confronted with a certain kind of situation, whether any kind of situation, my first thought isn't, well, Holy Spirit, give me the strength and give me the guidance to love as you would have me love. My thought is, okay, what should I do in order to achieve my own ends by my own strength? So that's all by myself mentality that's contrasted with freedom in Christ, which is in the gospel. Galatians 5.2, the the identity statement is basically circumcision. Look, Paul gets their attention. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Circumcision was an 
identity marker for the Jewish people. God gave circumcision as a sign of the covenant to Abraham. That's in, in Genesis 16. And then he also codified it in the Mosaic Law, Exodus 12. And so Jewish people from that time to the time that Paul was writing practiced circumcision as an identity marker. And Paul is saying, if you are viewing circumcision as a way to become part of the people of God, then Christ is of no value to you. So we here, trusting in Christ, say our identity is in Christ. We belong to him. And that is the core of identity. And that identity is by faith. We don't have to do anything in order to be made right with God. That was Paul's heavily emphasized point in the whole previous book. But these other legalists were saying, you have to do circumcision. In fact, you have to become, therefore, identifying as ethnically Jewish in order to become the people of God. And if it's that simple, you do the do circumcision, and then just don't worry, you just have to follow the whole law perfectly, then you'll be part of God's people. If we can become part of God's people by our own strength, by performing this ritualistic act and by following the code, if we can do that, then what is Jesus for? What did he die for? And that's part of Paul's point. He uses this economic metaphor where it says, will be of no advantage to you. The verb is like, will be of no profit. There won't be any gain, no, no benefit. Jesus is not of any use to you. Of course, Jesus is of is of great use because the reality is nobody can keep the law and in order to be right with God we have to be in Christ. So Jesus as Paul has said is of every value but if you embrace the point of view, if you set your mind on that all, my, all by myself legalistic point of view then you can do it by yourself and you don't really need Jesus. The second thing is also a, an economic metaphor in verse 3. Every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. And the, the phrasing is clunky and translated directly into English, but it's, he is a debtor. Every man who's, every circumcised man is a debtor to keep the whole law. And so if you sign up for this way of life, then you have to keep the whole law perfectly or else you're not saved. It gets worse though. That's talking about identity. Now let's talk about achievement, verse four. The achievement is you who would be justified by your law. And this really gets to the heart of that all-by-myself mentality. Wanting to be justified by the law. Wanting to prove to your, yourself or to the people around you or to God that you are good enough in your own strength. If you embrace this mentality, Paul writes, you are severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. This is really intense language. Some folks try to use this verse to teach that you can lose your salvation. And although there may be some more nuanced views on that, I do strongly hold the view that you can't lose your salvation. But that's not actually the debate today in this passage. Paul is addressing the heart mentality of wanting to do it by yourself. So this is key and core teaching. So let's figure out what he is talking about. He's not talking about you truly have salvation in Christ and, and then you truly lose it. But it's saying if you choose this mentality of 
seeking to be justified by the law. And both in the initial justification, being, that means being made right with God, and maintaining that right standing with God. If you are seeking to do that by your own strength, you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand Jesus. He's addressing these two incompatible systems for trying to get to God. Again, the all-by-myself system or way of getting to God is you have to follow all God's rules in order to be accepted by God. The other view, which is the gospel, is that we know we can't do that. Everyone fails and falls short. We trust completely in Christ, in his, receiving his gift as, by grace as a free gift, and trusting by faith. So one way that this legalistic mentality could sound of seeking to be justified by the law could be like this. If you commit the sin of blank, then you will lose your salvation. Or this legalistic viewpoint, false teaching could be if you don't do the good deed of blank or have the sign, perhaps miraculous sign, blank of salvation, you must not really be saved. Both these, if you do this bad thing or if you don't do this good thing, you must not be saved. Requ is requiring moral behavior as a condition in order to maintain a saved status with God. God doesn't require us to maintain certain moral conduct to remain in saved status with him. We're saved at the first by grace through faith, and we remain in right standing with God by grace through faith. Requiring a moral behavior as a condition for maintaining a safe status with God is heresy. If you believe this, says Paul, you are severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. In other words, you don't understand anything about how the gospel is good news, about how eternal life is a free gift from God. And Paul goes even further in this passage, in his intensity. He's not just talking to the Galatians, but also to the false teachers, and he goes after them in this passage. This is an example of the first way, the all-by-myself way of trying to get to God. It has nothing to do with faith or grace or Christ. It is futile for justification. It is powerless to save. It is ineffective for actually being a good person, living like a good person. And the outcome? What is the outcome of the all-by-myself life philosophy? You end up by yourself. The all-by-myself life ends by yourself, apart from Christ, forever. You are severed from Christ, you who will be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. If you reject Christ, then you, if you reject the forgiveness as a free gift in Christ, as an ongoing status in your life, and that is the essence of who you are, if you reject that and you're saying, Thanks, Jesus. Thanks for giving me a clean state. Now I'm going to try to be the perfect Christian. If that's your mentality, then you don't understand grace in the first place. And you will end up apart from Christ forever. So all by myself, life philosophy can initially sound empowering. 
You can do it. You are worthy. You are strong enough. Try harder. That can be challenging. That can be invigorating. Real Christians become Jewish ethnically, and they follow the law. Real Christians do everything right. And that can be a very invigorating challenge for certain types of people. But the outcome is this. You, all by myself, in my strength, I am going to live the Christian life in my own strength. Life ends up there by yourself. Let's contrast that with freedom in Christ. What is the second way of life? That is freedom in Christ. Just as he said in verse 1, for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore. Hold tightly to it. Let's continue in verse 5. There are two phrases here. Let's not gloss over them. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So, through the Spirit, this is talking about by the empowering work of the Spirit and by the guidance of the Spirit. So, the Christian life is not conducted from a place of fear of the law. If I don't do this in my strength, I won't measure up. But it's completely separated from that. Instead, it's this, the gentle guidance the kind voice of the Spirit, sometimes intense, guiding us in what we should and shouldn't do, and also the empowerment to do it. Sometimes we're afraid to live as God calls us to do, or we're selfish, and we have certain sins in our life that are really difficult. The Spirit can give us strength and victory over that. And by faith, it, it, that means that not only do we trust Christ in the first place when we come to him, but we remain in a trusting relationship with him. We believe in him, and we believe that he gives us life. So that's the way of the Christian life, through the Spirit, by faith. Who are we? We are in Christ. We live through the Spirit and by faith. And where are we going? That's the next clause there. We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. I love this phrase. I love this verb. Eagerly wait. If this is not a hope, a hope that's tenuous, that's wishful thinking. This is a sure and steadfast hope. Let's unpack that. Let's talk about it. Why is this such a sure thing? We see this verb actually all over Romans 8. And, and he... There, Paul talks about the, for the anxious longing of the, uh, of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. So this word waits eagerly is like, it means anticipation, that you have a full expectation. It's an expectant hope. So we don't fully have the f- complete redemption, the full salvation that God's promised. Now what God has given to us in the Holy Spirit is really wonderful. And the Holy Spirit is such a gracious and kind gift to us in this life, but we remain broken. I can certainly speak for myself there, that I know that I'm not good enough, and if you're being honest with yourselves, you know that you're not good enough. And so the Holy Spirit is such a gracious gift to us as we live out this life now. But in Romans 8, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the Christian home. Physical resurrection 
for eternity in right relationship with God. In our passage today, he says, we eagerly await, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So what does righteousness mean? Righteousness means being in right standing with God. So who are we and who is God? God is our all-powerful being who made everything. We are his creatures. Right now, because of sin, we are not the, every human coming out of the gate is not in right standing with him. And even those of us who are, trust in him and are judicially, legally made right with God, we still struggle with sin. If you've walked with God for any amount of time, you know this is true. We, the sin is a, a grim and awful, death-bringing reality in the Christian's life. But when this life ends... And the mortality rate for living is 100%. Everyone who lives dies. When this life ends, then we will be freed from that sin nature, and we will be in complete right standing with God. And not only that, but when Christ returns and raises us from the dead physically, he will also recreate creation. And that's part of what Paul is talking about in Romans 8, where the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation itself is anxiously and eagerly anticipating the big reveal. Who are the rightful heirs? Who are God's children who will rightfully steward this created order? Creation anticipates us. And not only this, not only does all our broken world around us look forward to seeing who is in right standing with God and who will steward the creation properly, not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. This is what theologians often call the now but not yet. The now is that we, judicially speaking, when God looks at us and we are in Christ, he sees Christ. We are in right standing in God's eyes. But the not yet is that we still struggle with sin. And so we are looking forward to the day when we, are shed, uh, we shed ourselves of that sin, when God takes that sin away from us completely. We are ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our full adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That is where we are going. That is the Christian home. So remember the all-by-myself way of life? Where does that end up? by yourself. And we're together so we can say together by yourself. And where does the life of freedom in Christ end up? In right standing with God. In right standing with each other. In right standing with creation. A physical resurrection. This is the Christian home. It's a lot better. <laughs> it's a lot better. This is a pretty convincing argument. As Paul is drawing his letter to a, a conclusion, as far as his argumentation goes, this is a really potent passage. We'll skip over verse 6 and come back to it. Paul then unleashes, I don't have a better way to describe it than a rant. He goes on a rant. And he unleashes a bunch of one-liners. So the first one is a running analogy. You were running well, he says. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
So it's an athletic analogy. He says, you were you brought, brought into right standing with Christ, and you were running along in that way of life, and then you're held back. And although it's clear in this passage that there are obviously false teachers, and he has things to say about them, there are false teachers who are trying to get in their way. Pastor Drew brought up this point last night, and I thought it was really good. Who can actually truly hinder you from setting your mind on the way of Christ? There's only one person. That's yourself. So every person is individually accountable for whether you set your mind on the all-by-myself way of life, which is really anything apart from Christ, or whether you set your mind on choosing the way of freedom in Christ, live by the power of the Spirit, by faith, headed for that hope, headed for that sure hope. So who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, this truth of the gospel does have implications for our life, and that's why he uses the term obey. The, the way it's in the original language, it's kind of, who hindered you in order to disobey the truth? So they had originally espoused the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and now they were disobeying it. There are, there are lifestyle implications, but really that lifestyle implication is this freedom in, freedom in Christ, live by the power of the Spirit, and by faith. Next one-liner, verse 8. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. My question is, has the Lord called you? Has he called you to follow him? Have you responded to that call? If so, then you have some familiarity with the kind and merciful voice of our Lord. His voice is not a legalistic voice. So this persuasion, this all-by-myself false teaching, you need to be good enough. Oh, it's nice that you're in Jesus. Now you have to do all these good things in order to maintain saved status. Oh, look, you did that. Oh, you're not doing that. Oh, you're not measuring. That is not the Lord's voice, Paul says. This persuasion, that kind of argumentation, is not from him who calls you. Pastor Mike brought up this idea of an advocate, that Jesus is our advocate. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, in that theoretical situation where anybody might possibly sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And Pastor Mike highlighted that this word advocate actually is used also to talk about a defense attorney. So if you think that the Lord's life Lord's voice in your life. What if you were to sit before Jesus and hear his assessment of who you are and how you're doing? You have trusted in him, you're in him. And if in that moment you anticipate being condemned, being critiqued, being told, being told, you haven't performed well enough. You're not meeting muster. You're not good enough because of these things that you're falling short. That legalism is not the Lord's voice because he, the Lord Jesus, has fulfilled that for us. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. He is not the prosecution. He's our defense. And the one who accuses us with this harsh legalism 
that if you don't do these things, you will not be in right standing with God. If you don't do these things, you will not be in saved status. The accuser, says scripture, is Satan. <laughs> so if when you think of Jesus and how he would speak to you if he was seeing you right now, and you think he'd probably have some accusing, condemning things, accusing and condemning things. The accusation, condemnation of legalism is actually from Satan, and it's not from the Lord Jesus, is what Paul is saying. As a side note, I do want to mention that the Holy Spirit, as he guides us, sometimes does bring gentle conviction. But the Lord's voice, in that case, is not harsh and condemning, but bringing to our attention something that we've done that's grieved and hurt our relationship with him and that he wants us to take care of. It's discipline for our good. It's not condemnation and penalty because we're, we're so bad. The Lord knows just how bad we are. The Lord knows that we aren't good enough in ourselves. And he's taken care of that by dying on the cross for us. Next one-liner. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So this is the leaven analogy. Last night, as I was preparing the message, I took about a half a cup of flour and a half a cup of water, and then I put just one teaspoon of, of active yeast, dry active yeast in, and dropped it in. And as I was working through, within 40, 45 minutes, it had doubled in volume. So that one teaspoon had permeated, had multiplied, had spread throughout all the, the batch the tiny batch of, of flour and water, bread preparation, and caused it to have astonishing results. So Paul is using this analogy of bread making to say that this is a false teaching, that all by myself teaching is a false teaching, and if you, as a community of faith, the Galatian believers, tolerate this, it will sneak throughout quietly. Now I sat there, and I was working on the computer, and... I just, I was watching it or checking it now and then, but it was quiet. It wasn't like it just went boom and exploded. <laughs> but at a certain point, there were bubbles. I heard some, even some bubbling as the uh, carbon dioxide escaped from the yeast. And that, that's what causes the doubling in volume. So similarly, false teaching like this legalism can sneak in in a very under quiet way it can sound like, well, it's really good that you're a Christian and I'm so happy for you, but you're not doing these things, so God really isn't that happy with you. And you, if you don't do this, then probably you're not going to heaven. And if you do do this, you're definitely not going to heaven. There's even the teaching of mortal sins in another branch of Christianity, that if you do these bad sins and you die in those sins, without confessing them, then you're going to hell. And so that is a form of legalism. And it can sound kind of nice. Again, the intensity. Like, God is holy, God loves you, God saved you, so now live up to his expectations or else you will not be with him forever. Or else he will end up condemning you in the end. But that really is legalism at the end of the day. So this, this leaven can sneak in and permeate a whole local body. So say, for example, we at Coronado Baptist Church were to start tolerating uh, legalism, or if we are tolerating legalism, that can sneak out throughout the whole body and from person to person, from believer to believer, permeate the whole group. 
And it's my belief, based on this scripture, because he's speaking in the plural, not just to individuals, but to the group of churches. So similarly, to think of us receiving this message from Paul as a group. If we were to tolerate that, then as that false teaching of legalism, that heresy saturated throughout the whole congregation, then those who were true believers would be either excluded because they messed up and they didn't do this, they weren't measuring or whatever, or they would realize that this isn't a faithfully walking church and leave. Or, um, and then all those who would remain would be those legalists. And that would be in the life of a church, falling from grace, being severed from Christ. And this actually does happen. Thank God, I love our church, and we don't embrace legalism, so that's not happening, at least not overtly to my knowledge. But if your brother or sister comes to you with this kind of mentality, this needs to be addressed as a, in a strong way, loving way, as Paul says later in Galatians 6, in the spirit of, of humility and kindness by those who are spirit-minded. But it must be addressed. Legalism cannot be tolerated at all. So I'm very grateful that our church preaches the true gospel and has set our minds on the true gospel. Next verse, Paul takes a more optimistic view. So he's laid this choice out before them. Are you going to choose the all-by-myself legalistic point of view, or are you going to choose the freedom in Christ? And he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other you, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. So kind of going back to the running analogy, say you have the Galatian believers all running together, following Christ, and then these other people come in and they say, well, you need to do this. Well, you need to do that. Otherwise, you're not really saved. And so they're getting kind of stumbled up. Paul is saying, you're at this moment of trying to decide, do I keep running with Christ and leave all that behind? Which is their, their choice. And they're going to be held accountable for that choice. Do I, keep, do I keep running with Christ and leave that false teaching behind? Or do I embrace it? And he says, I, I believe, I, I know you all. And I think you guys are going to make the right choice. So that, that verb, to have no other view, is to set your mind. Again, going back to Romans 8, verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So if we take the viewpoint that we're going to approach life in our own strength, which is what it's talking about, by the flesh, to set the mind on the flesh in I'm going to live by my own strength. In the toddler expression, I'm going to do this by myself. I got this. I need to do this. Otherwise, God won't accept me. If that's the way we approach life, that ends in death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You think about how oppressive that is to, to always feel that you need to be performing up to a certain level in order to be acceptable to God. That's not a peaceful mentality. Paul says to the Galatians, I believe that you're going to make the right choice. And so the other people are sneaking in, trying to throw the blocks in front of you, the stumbling blocks, these false teachings, trying to trip you up. They're going to get what's coming to them. And what is that? The all-by-myself attitude? Where do those people end up? 
by themselves. The next verse, 11, talks about circumcision. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? So let's talk about Paul's practical relationship to circumcision. He's been using, using circumcision to represent following the Mosaic law in order to be saved. But practically speaking, Paul was not against circumcision. In Acts 16, as he's bringing Timothy, this young man, under his wing, teaching him to be a missionary, teaching him to be a pastor, uh, training him up, discipling him. Timothy was a godly young man with a Jewish heritage, Jewish ethnicity on his mom's side, but he wasn't yet circumcised. And so in order to be, to be able to speak to other Jews, Paul go ahead, go, goes ahead and circumcises Timothy because otherwise he would not be seen as really Jewish by the other potential believers. And so for the purpose of, of, of mission, for the purpose of reaching Jewish people, Paul circumcises Timothy. He wasn't against that. Paul himself was circumcised. He says it in, in Philippians, circumcised the eighth day. He followed the exact, well, his parents followed the exact ritual. And so he wasn't against circumcision as, a, as an identifier with the Jewish heritage. And similarly, and going back to verse 6, as I said we would, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So he's saying it doesn't matter whether you're of Jewish ethnicity or non-Jewish, Greek or pagan ethnicity, Gentile ethnicity. That doesn't matter at all when it comes to Christ, but only faith working through love. And the same is true today. Um, God is not against the Jews. I want to be very clear that even though Paul is say, has these harsh things to say against Judaizing, saying that you have to follow the Mosaic law in order to be saved, Paul and God, I can say, God wants the Jewish people to come to himself through Christ. So circumcision nor uncircumcision Neither of these count for any, anything. And so Paul actually still practiced circumcision. Now, he didn't for everybody. In this same book of Galatians, um, chapter 3, verse 2, or 2, 3, I think, he, he's talking about Titus, who was a Gentile believer, a, a very golly man, ends up becoming an elder in the church. And he does not circumcise Titus because Titus is a Gentile. So very practically speaking, Paul is being consistent with his message. He's saying, I am not practicing, I'm not circumcising Titus because that would be hypocritical to my message. That would be saying, oh, in order to become an elder in the church, you have to become circumcised. You have to become ethnically Jewish. But when it came to his, his understudy, his young disciple, Timothy, who had that Jewish heritage, he did proceed and practice circumcision. So that's why he's saying here in verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? So Paul hadn't actually shed his Jewish heritage. In fact, he, he loved the Jewish people to the point that he said, if I could give up my own salvation, that the whole nation would be saved, I would do that. He loved the Jewish people. And so he's throwing that back at the false teachers, at the Judaizers, and saying, why are you coming after me? I'm not saying you don't have to be Jewish anymore. I'm just saying that being Jewish isn't a prerequisite for salvation. 
And following the Mosaic law isn't the way to maintain your saved status. The next phrase we'll come back to. In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Verse 12, a little bit intense. Paul uses graphic and ironic language. He's really upset about this false teaching. He loves the Galatian believers. He doesn't want them to set their minds on this all-by-myself way that ends up by themselves. And he, he is really upset about the false teachers. And so he writes, Oh, how I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And this is what he's using with his metaphor. Is saying, he's saying that he wishes the false teachers would first lack power. So in Roman culture, if someone was castrated, they were assumed to lack virility and strength and power. So he's saying, I wish these false teachers would have no power over you, no strength in your presence. And then he also is saying he hopes that these false teachers will not reproduce their teaching. So just as, I, as we were talking about the leaven analogy, how it doubles in volume, and then the way leaven works, you've got these yeast, yeast organisms, and they reproduce rapidly. And so that's how false teaching can go. And so Paul is saying, I, I, I wish and I pray to God that this false teaching will be cut off and not reproduce anymore in your midst. What is this offense of the gospel in verse 11? What is the offense of the gospel? I mean, the way we sound, heard it said earlier, it sounds really great. The offense of the cross? Well, the, how is the cross an offensive thing to us? Jesus paid it all. We don't have to pay the penalty for our sin. We're going to heaven forever. We have the hope of resurrection. This sounds really great. But in order to get there, there is a profoundly offensive thing that Paul is saying is there in front of every person. Pastor Drew said it this way last night. This offensive thing, imagine saying this to your friend or your family member who's not a believer. You are not good enough. You are not worthy. You cannot fix yourself, and you will never be able to fix yourself. That's a rude thing to say. It's extremely offensive in our society. It was offensive back then as well. And this is a grim truth about ourselves that we must accept as a prerequisite, yes, to say, I am bankrupt. I cannot do this. I need Jesus completely. So yes, there's bad news. The offense of the cross is that our sin is so bad that the Son of God is the only person who could eliminate the punishment, who could completely absorb the punishment. This is what is called the doctrine of the necessity of the atonement. That Jesus' death on our behalf was necessary for God to bring us into right standing with him. He could not just gloss over our sins. Having been created in his image, we all have value as human beings made in his image. But everyone has taken that value and corrupted it by sin. Every single person has corrupted our design and our image bearing. So to stand in the presence of holy God forever, we are not worthy of that. We are not good enough. And not only that, now that we've done that, we can't undo that. 
Okay, and then say that Jesus wipes that out and gives us a clean slate, but we have to maintain safe status in a legalistic way in order to, we have to do these things and not do these other things in order to maintain safe status. The offensive thing about the cross is that we still cannot achieve right standing or maintain right standing with God on our own strength. We must be completely dependent on Jesus to maintain that status with God, to maintain that right relationship with God. This is the good news, though, that he has done that for us. As, as bad as we had it, that we were sinful and destined for hell as the just punishment for our sin. Again, this is an offensive thing. And oftentimes, people will avoid speaking about hell, even to other Christians, because talking about hell is uncomfortable. But the reality is is that I, myself, and every one of you has sinned, and the just punishment for sin before God is eternal separation by ourselves because we wanted to do it our own way. That was even the original sin with Adam and Eve. Has God truly said? Okay, yeah. But God knows that when you eat the fruit, you will become like him, knowing good and evil. In other words, you get to define your own morality. You get to define what is right and wrong. You can do it yourself. You can have life. You can be like God by yourself apart from God. So this is part of the original sin. So as uncomfortable as that is, there is then good news that Jesus, knowing we were on that path, loved us enough to intervene. And he took the punishment for us. What great love has our Lord for us. And that we get to spend forever with him in right relationship. In perfect bodies. So how do we live in the meantime? In the midst of the now, but not yet. Yes, we are in right relationship with him. We who have trusted in Christ and are not relying on our own strength, how do we live? And Going back to verse, verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, by, our, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And then the second part of verse 6, but only faith working through love. Verse 17. But through love, serve one another. When I was a teenager growing in my faith, I was mentored by an old school navigator, and he had me memorize the topical memory system, which I highly recommend. And one of my favorite verses, John 14, 21. At this point in my, in my life and in my faith journey, I, my, my heart and my mind were just exploding with an awareness of how much God loved me. And I thought, I, I love God. I want to love God. I want to show God how I love him. But how do you love a perfect creator God? He doesn't need anything. He's completely happy. He has love within himself. He doesn't have any needs. And in this verse, a way was provided forward for me to express love back to him. And now, God's commandments in John 14 are shown to be, there's no condemnation, but it's a way of expressing love back to him. The verse says, if anyone has my commandments from Jesus, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. So think of that in the midst of your daily life right now. Do you want Jesus to show himself to you more and more? Do you want to experience 
the benevolent, kind, good love of your Heavenly Father? Do you hunger for that connection with God the Father and God the Son? Well, we do that by having His commandments and loving other people. So the summary of the law, the summary of God's commands of how we practically and morally should live is summed up, according to Jesus, in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5.14. So when we love each other, and with the kind of intense, extravagant, self-sacrificial, unilateral love that we're called to do, we are expressing love back to him. And why is that? Because we're demonstrating to the world around us God's heart for each person around us, that he loves, he wants them to receive his love just as we've received it. We've received a unilateral love. God was under no obligation. He, he was, there was nothing in us that compelled him to save us from our sins. But he chose because of his love for us to save us from our sins. And so it's a unilateral love. It's not based on our behaviors that God loves us. So then to love other people in that same kind of way is to bring glory to God and to actually express love back to him. This is a difficult thing to do. It's a simple thing to say. It's a difficult thing to do because of this ongoing struggle with sin, the now but not yet. So how do we do that in, the, in this meantime? We do it through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit both empowers us and guides us in what we ought to do. A couple more applications. I'm going to re- read a list of, family, of values and Most of these things, at least, are are good things. But they may be things that we ascribe to. Family values, Christian values, biblical values, ethnic or family heritage, religious affiliation, conservative values, liberal values, academic achievements, professional status, financial stability or wealth, social media following. So here are some questions I want you to ask yourself along with me as I ask myself these questions. Do I sometimes place too much importance on these things, many of which are really good and valuable? Are any of these ways for me to prove to myself, the people around me, or to God that I'm good enough? If any of these things, proving that I'm good enough according to any of these value systems, is more important than my identity as a morally bankrupt sinner, forgiven and redeemed to be God's child because of Christ's sacrifice, received as a free gift only by faith. If any of these value systems is more important than that identity, then that verse applies to me. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. In other words, not just talking about the Mosaic Law, but any value system. If we are seeking to derive our sense of worth, significance from any value system, and we place more value in that value system than our identity in Christ, then we are not in Christ, and we will not end up in Christ. So the identity of the believer is in Christ, and that is the core identity. Yes, these other things. I'm not saying don't, don't espouse biblical values. 
Biblical values obviously are very good, but they're an expression, an outflow of our identity. They're not a way to achieve that identity in the first place. We don't achieve value by living up to the value and conducting ourselves according to any value system, if any of those apply to you. Our value is given to us as Christ paid the penalty, a very costly sacrifice. And we receive that freely by grace, and we stand in that. That is the lifestyle. We stand persistently. We stand firm, therefore. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Let's not sign up to be under the slavery of competing and striving to achieve according to any value system other than what God has said. If you want to be right with me, be in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent your Son to die for us, that you so loved the world, that you sent your only Son, one of a kind. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you loved us enough to die for our sins. A sacrifice of immeasurable cost. You gave up your status with all the great privileges and became like us with our broken, weak, disease-prone, death-destined bodies. You not only became joined in as part of creation, but you joined in as part of broken creation. Retaining your perfect holiness, you died for us. And therefore, thereby obliterated the just wrath that was on us. I'm so grateful, Lord, that you've done that for us and that you loved us so much. And not only that, but that when you rose again, that you've sent your spirit to live in our lives now. What a gift. That the spirit that raised you from the dead will bring that to pass when you return And in the meantime, we can experience that resurrection power. We can, resting in you and trusting in you, find victory over sin and find courage to love extravagantly. In your name, amen.